Welcome to Bunny Hugs and Mental Health, the podcast that deals with all things mental health. We talk to professionals, survivors, and loved ones about their sometimes informative, sometimes uplifting, and sometimes tragic stories. I'm your host of the show, Todd Runnebaum, advocate, recovering addict, experienced sufferer of depression and anxiety, and author of the children's book, Sometimes Daddy Cries. Hello, welcome to another episode of Bunny Hugs and Mental Health. I am Todd Rennebaum. Before we get too far ahead in the episode, I would just like to thank our sponsor, Regina Plumbing and Heating. Their phone number is 585-2000 and call them for all your plumbing, heating, and cooling needs. Now, this week, or this episode, I guess the same thing. This week's episode, I'm talking to Tyson Williams. He's a really great guy. He's gone through a uh, part of his life where he was suicidal, having lots of depression and anxiety, and uh, yeah, he's just got a great story. You'll 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 hear all about it and um, and and how he made an unlikely friend. So please take a listen. And without further ado, Tyson Williams. So when did you first feel symptoms of depression? Uh, eventually, uh, after years and years of living with it, diagnosed with depression. Um, I mean, looking back on it now, after what I know about it now, uh, like I can, I can remember symptoms of it probably starting when I was maybe 14, 15 in there. And, uh, I know for for so many people, you know, who who ex- start experiencing it at that age, it, it's it's tough to really talk about it because those that do, you know, you're you're told, oh, it's just puberty or whatever, mm-hmm. um, and, and that's all I figured it probably uh-huh. was. Uh, so I I never told anyone, and at that time it was. You know, it wasn't anything I would say was that was I'd consider severe or anything, but it was just, you know, fleeting thoughts of kind of self-loathing. You know, I'm not good enough. Why study for that test? I'm going to fail it anyway. Um, I played hockey at the time. And, you know, I can, I can remember times when, you know, I would have an open net to shoot at. And I'd miss on purpose. Hmm. You know, a lot of I'd missed just because I wasn't very good. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but there were times I would miss on purpose simply because I didn't want anybody coming up and giving me that hug you see after goals or high fives or anything like that. Hmm. And, uh, and so it just kind of bloomed from there, I guess. Uh, do you mind me asking how old you are now? I am 45. Ah, okay. So we're roughly the same age and it was about the same age. I started kind of feeling the same stuff. So oh. very li- relatable. Yeah. Except I'd ever played hockey. <laughs> oh. Uh, have you been diagnosed with, sorry, what's that? I tried. <laughs> <laughs> have you been diagnosed with anything bipolar or anything or just chronic depression? Uh, well, with me, it was just chronic depression. Um, 
and and I could get into that part of the story as as we progress. Um, but yeah, I was I was about thirty four when I was officially diagnosed. Hmm. So basically, I'd up until that point. I mean, I'd lived with it with, for you know twenty twenty years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, our stories are very very similar. I was about the same age when I started taking meds. Are you on meds, or did you start taking meds then? On meds, um, and it has nothing to do. I always feel I should say this um, after saying that I'm not on meds. It has absolutely zero to do with not believing in them or anything like that. Um, if if I got to a point where the doctor told me, listen, you need these, I'm going to take them. Mm. Um, it's for me at this point, um, the biggest medicine for me has been simply what we're doing now and talking about it. And, um, and that's been, that's been huge. So do you do some advocating on your own? Like you, you talk quite a bit about it. I try to, um, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's, I did do some talks, um, a few years ago. I think I've done like a grand total of five, um, <laughs> but at the same time, and then, you know, COVID hit. So that kind of shut everything down. And like I told you earlier, um, you know, in terms of, of, um, guys being on the circuit who do talk about it professionally and stuff you know they're more high in demand so i'm kind of the bottom of the barrel when it comes to that (laughs) it it is something i would like to do more of especially once you know or when covid screws off um you could swear okay good Um, (laughs) fucks off it would be be to, to get back out there like I, I did enjoy it. Um, I'd like to talk more to adults. Like the talks I did do were at high schools, hmm. which was good. And I would do again in a heartbeat. Um, but I would like to just broaden my horizons and go out more and talking to, to adults, like I said, and men especially. Because I think there's still a lot of men out there that just aren't in a place right now where where they feel they can talk openly about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find a lot of men don't even realize they're going through depression. It's like they're drinking and they're angry all the time, but it's you know that's how a lot of men feel depressed. Exactly. Yeah. Did you kind of go through uh, a phase of drinking lots or being angry? Uh, towards, I wouldn't say so much the anger, um, you know, in the, in the last, uh, few years before I, I spoke about it for the first time and before I, I actually went and got help for it and stuff. Um, yeah, my, my drinking was probably way over the top. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and even, even today, I mean, I'm at a place where like, I do enjoy I, I, I like my beer, um, but if if I'm having, you know, a really, really rough day, you know, I know to steer clear of it because it's just going to bring me even more down. Right. But you don't have a, it's not like you have an issue drinking. It's just. No. Right. Yeah. 
yeah, I know a lot of guys that have issues drinking <laughs> and it's really not helping their uh, situations, but, um, where did you grow up? I, uh, was born and raised in Prince Albert. Oh, okay. Uh, lived there till I was about, I'd say about 21. And, uh, then I moved to a smaller version of Prince Albert here in North Battles. <laughs> <laughs> How do you find the mental health system, uh, in those smaller Northern cities? Oh man. Um, you know, when it comes to my own personal experience with everything I went through and stuff, uh, I was very fortunate, but I'm also not blind to, to how bad it is. And, and not just here, but everywhere, not just Saskatchewan, but the, uh, Canada in general. Um, we, we still have a very yeah. long way to go. It wasn't too long ago when I started advocating. And at that time, Saskatchewan was one of the lowest, um, like they had the lowest money allocated to mental health out of all the provinces and Canada out of the G20 countries was one of the lowest for allocating money to mental health. So it was almost like Saskatchewan was at par with third world countries for um, their mental health system. I, I know things have changed in the last, you know, things have gotten better in the last even five years, but yeah, man, there's a long way to go yet. Um, yeah, sadly that, that doesn't surprise me. Um, but you know, I, I always kind of see myself as that eternal optimist. Um, and I look for the positive things and, you know, I do see like nowadays, I do see more people, um, even, even men that, do step up that do talk about their their experiences and, and things like that and you know it's a start mm -hmm. a lot more people are talking about it openly um now than you know even five years ago yeah i i really think that's the major thing i think that's the major swing is people talking about it because if you don't talk about it then people don't know what's happening so they don't know to allocate money to that so so yeah the, the more you talk then the more it becomes in the foreground so yeah so what, what you said you were 34 so that was about 11 years ago that um was that when you started seeking help or was that like your darkest of the dark moments and you my well that was kind of both um it was the darkest of the dark and I mean, through that uh, light at the end of that tunnel and uh, basically to get right into it at that point, I mean, like I said earlier, I'd probably been living with it for about 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh, I hadn't told another human being what I was going through. I always just kind of figured these were the crappy cards life had to deal you know, had dealt me. Um, and I was, I had been married. Uh, we were divorced at that point. Um, and we did have a daughter from that marriage. So with me, my depression always, it, it, it was like a, a self-loathing thing, but it was mm -hmm. always kind of attacked 
the things and the people I love the most. So, I mean, in terms of being a dad, you know, my brain would be constantly telling me what a horrible dad I am. Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, initially in years, years leading up to that, like I, I say, you know, for the most part, these, these thoughts and, and stuff that were going on were, were almost fleeting. You know, they would, they would happen maybe a few times a day, but only for a few minutes at a time. And then by, by the time, like I was 33, 34 years old, it was 24 seven, you know, it was like, just never shut up. And, you know, I, I always compare it to, uh, you know, when you, you get in your car, go to work or, or go wherever. And, you know, your a good song comes on and you crank the volume up and you get to where you're going and you turn the car off and then you come back, you turn the car on and you realize you forgot to turn the volume down before you got out and it just blasts you. And that was my brain, hmm. you know, 24 seven by that point. And, and was there anything that really triggered you at that time? Was it just, it, it was slow and gradual and it was... Like, I mean, you know, I compare it to the radio also to, you know, you, you watch those nature shows with like the lions and, you know, you just watch how they, you know, they'll sit there for hours watching their prey mm -hmm. and then time they strike and that's that's kind of what depression was for me for 20 years it just you know kind of kicked went in one ear out the other and then all of a sudden it just the claws came out and they sunk in and it wouldn't let go and at that point like leading up to that years leading up to that when it came to the like thoughts of suicide and, and things like that um you know, that was never something I was really scared of, mainly because I'm a big chicken shit. And, and you know, being honest, like I was just, the thought of it just scared the crap out of me to even try, you know, to do something like that. So because of that, I was never worried about it. But when that's happening and you don't do anything about it, eventually, you know, my brain's telling me now that, you know, there's, who cares if you're scared? It's the only way out. It's the mm -hmm. only stop the stop this pain you're in. And, and then it became, you know, very, very real, very quick. Yeah. Yeah. That's very similar to, to me as well. It, was, it, it became obsessive thinking really. Yeah at that point that you were getting suicidal and stuff, were you calling in sick a lot? Were you in bed a lot? Or were you still really high functioning and able to go to work and, and be a functioning person? You know, looking back on it now, um, I mean, I, there was a, a period of time where there was a lot of sick calls, but it wasn't that long. Like when I look back on it now, I'm actually amazed at how you know how i how i go on with my my normal everyday life like i'd go to work i'd put the mask on um i was playing slow pitch so i'd go do that 
and and go out with the with the team after and you know and I mean what it would always be like I lived alone at that time um so I'd get home after all that and that's when I could finally take that mask off Hmm. but but yeah like I mean other than that one you know small period of time where where my sick calls did probably pile up um for the most part though I just I just kept on going and I think that's also one of the things that led to to my meltdown so to speak was because I was wearing that mask so often every day like it just becomes so physically and mentally draining you're exhausted mm-hmm. so was there like a a pivotal moment where you thought oh shit this is i need to get help this has gone too far like was there a trigger or something that happened is there you know what i mean like was there a peak? yeah okay so uh basically i'll i'll take you through the day sure um uh i i really have like i've never considered myself overly religious or anything um this particular day though i mean you know call it fate call it whatever it's just amazing how how things ended up transpiring because it it did get to a point i did get to a point where i had picked a date to to give up to end my life and there was no significance to to that particular day um i just picked it and you know spent the days leading up to it uh getting things a little bit ready and in order and and things like that and so when that day came i remember actually the night before that particular day um, I probably had one of the best sleeps I'd had in a long time. Huh. Like, and that's that's one of the the real uh, tricky and scary things when it comes to to suicide is, you know, when you make that decision to do it, there is that, like, I did have that sense of relief uh-huh. that all this pain, all this garbage, it's going to be over soon, and uh, and so. I had one, you know, a really good sleep. I woke up the next day. Um, I even went through a couple dry runs of what I was going to do because for me, this was not going to be an attempt. Mm-hmm. It was going to be suicide. I was not going to be a person that, you know, attempted it a bunch of times or anything. This for me was one and done. So I wanted to make sure everything was was right. And um and when it was, I just kind of sat around my apartment and and was waiting for my brain to tell me, okay, Tyson, go do it. And like I said, fate, whatever, uh, that switch never went off. And I happened to be watching TV. And at the time, uh, there was a show on TSN. Uh, called Mm -hmm. Off the Record. It was hosted by a guy named Michael Landsberg. And I used to watch that show religiously. And over the years, it just became one of those shows where you kind of, where I would kind of watch just because there was nothing else on. Mm -hmm. I just happened to tune in that day. And that day, he had a guest on his show, uh, Stefan Richet, 
Um, some of the younger listeners to this might not know who that was, uh, <laughs> but he was he was pretty big in the NHL. Um, played for Montreal Gag <laughs> and New Jersey. You know, won a couple Stanley Cups and stuff like that. They had maybe a you know minute and a half to two minute conversation about depression. You know, Riche went through about a depression, um, and he talked about it um, and and what he was going through. And this was right after he had won the Cup with New Jersey. And he had talked about, you know, how he was driving back to Montreal after in that off season, and how he he was at a point for him where, you know, as he's driving down the highway, he's looking at, you know, a group of trees and thinking, you know, I go head on into those. It could all be done. And I, I did a lot of highway driving, and that was always one of my thoughts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm just watching this, this two-minute conversation these guys are having, and I'm bawling at this point because it's like they're both reaching through that TV screen and slapping me in the face. Like I'm relating to everything he's talking about in terms of his experiences and all that stuff. And it was like, finally, there's a name to what I'm going through, Hmm. you know, and it can happen. You know, Hmm. it was proof that it can happen to anybody. I mean, here's a guy who lived almost every Canadian guy's dream, right? Playing in the NHL, minus the part about Montreal, (laughs) but playing in the NHL and winning a Stanley Cup. And he was at a point where he wanted to take his life. So I I think that shows the power of the illness. Yeah. And this actually happened the day that you had planned? This, This was on the day I had planned. Um, all waiting for, like I said earlier, you know, I spent that day waiting for this, waiting for my brain to tell me, okay, Tyson, go do it. And it hadn't told me that yet. Hmm. And so after that episode, uh, Michael's email address pops up on the bottom of the screen. And I figure, you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna write him a quick little note. A uh, quick little email thanking them for doing the show, uh, for talking about it, you know, that I'm sure it'll save someone's life. Little did I know at that time whose life it would save, but um, it turned out he responded to me. Hmm. And I was floored. Like at first, I thought, you know, okay, is this really Landsberg or just some lackey he has working for him? But uh, but no, it was him. Um, we talked back and forth through email for about maybe two hours. And um, that same day? Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's how I remember it. Mm-hmm. Where he says it was the next day. Um but I remember it being the same day. Huh. Uh, and, but I do remember after that conversation um, that, that we had had through email, uh, I went and laid down and cried myself to sleep. Partly out of 
just relief of knowing that I wasn't the only one going through what I was going through. And partly just because my body and my brain were exhausted. And I ended up waking up the next day. And, and that's when I remember waking up that day and thinking, okay, well, I was supposed to kill myself yesterday. And now it's today. It's like, wow, I made it that day. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's pretty powerful, man. Like to, to get that close, to have a plan and yeah, it makes you wonder. I know you said you're not a religious person at all, but it makes you wonder sometimes, doesn't it? You know, stuff like oh. that. Yeah. So you actually got to meet him or? I did. Yeah. And, uh, I can get into that part. Uh, but like, I'll, I'll go back to that the following day after I sure, talked. Yeah. And I mean, that was the first time that I had ever told another human being what I was going through. Mm. And I mean, keep in mind also at that time, I worked and had been working for 10 years on the front lines at a psychiatric hospital. Really? So at no point in that 10 years did I ever look at a patient and think, man, I can relate to what they're going through. Huh. Right. And uh, so, you know, just having told somebody there, there was this relief there and I actually did feel a little bit better. It felt good just getting that out, even though it was to a person I figured I'm never going to talk to or meet again. And, uh, and I kind of coasted on that for, you know, I don't know, maybe a few weeks and, uh, but I didn't do anything, you know, in, in the meantime, in those two weeks, I didn't go to a doctor. I still didn't tell anybody else. Oh yeah. And, and needless to say, it's, you know, it, it came back and it came back harder than ever. And, uh, I ended up, uh, being taken to the mental health ward at our hospital here where I spent about a week and a half. So at that point you reached out. Yeah, I had okay. called. So this is a few weeks after, um, that talk with Michael I had had, and it was, you know, probably two or three o'clock in the morning. And, and, um, and I was just, I knew if I didn't make a phone call, I was going to die. It was that simple. And I mean, I picked up my phone book again for younger listeners. (laughs) (laughs) But I picked up phone book because, you know, there's always the emergency numbers on the front cover. And I looked to see if there was a suicide hotline listed and there wasn't, but there there was a 24 hour sexual assault hotline. And so I figured, okay, while the sexual assault people must know some suicide people and they can steer me in the right direction. And, um, so I called, I called that, that number and a lady answered and, you know, it was kind of funny when I look back on it now, because before I made that phone call, I was just this blubbering mess, 
you know, as, as this lady answers the phone, I just, you know, kind of poise myself and, you know, on my bed, just matter of fact way, you know, uh, do you happen to have the number of the suicide hotline? <laughs> <laughs> it's like my mom, when I was a kid, she'd be yelling and screaming at us, but the phone rang and boom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and there's this side, this pause on the other end and this lady just, you know, came back with, are you okay? And as soon as she said that, that blubbering mess came back and uh and i i could i could hear her talking to someone in the background i think she may have been on a cell phone or something um but you know within minutes there were four cops at my door and i know there's a lot of people out there who don't have uh good stories about that Mm -hmm. you know uh cops showing up during mental health distress calls and things like that um again fortunately for me you know they were four really good cops and we sat down we talked a while they talked me into into them driving me down to the hospital and i uh and i did and uh i spent you know maybe a week and a half or so there and that's when i was officially diagnosed and again you know the 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 whole power of sharing the power of realizing you're not the only one going through this Yeah. in there, you know, I don't remember talking with doctors or nurses or anything like that. Um, all I remember is standing outside, having smoke and there was this massive man standing right next to me. And I mean, when you, when you think of, you know, that stereotypical manly man, you know, this guy was, you know, six, maybe six, three, six, four. Um, he was just huge. I mean, I, I, his hands were bigger than my head mm-hmm. and he towered over me is what it felt like. And he looks, he kind of looks down at me as we're puffing on our smokes and he says, what are you in for? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm scared shitless of this guy. I'm thinking he's going to beat the crap out of me or something. And uh, I just kind of shrugged and said, uh, I, they tell me I got depression. And all, all he said after that was, oh, yeah, man, me too. And he put his hand on my shoulder. Huh. And, and there again, you know, the, the power of just, I mean, especially at that time, you know, men don't, men don't cry. Men don't talk about their feelings. Um, you know, men don't talk about what they might be struggling with. And here is the most manliest man I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and he's in the same boat as I am. Yeah. I was just talking to uh, a school class of nurses. I do talking sometimes for mental health stuff. And, and they're all six feet apart wearing masks and stuff. And I thought, Jesus, I, I feel so bad for the people that are in the psych ward now. Because like you said, he, you know, you guys were close. He put his hand on you. Like like the, the think now during this pandemic, you have to keep six feet apart, mask on. You can't, there's still that divide. Like it, um, it's harder to share and harder to uh, be open with someone who's, you can't even look at their face or be, you know, within six feet of them. So uh, I feel really bad for people that were in the hospital now. Yeah. It's, I mean, definitely. 
about to be a, a, yeah, something that would be tough getting used to. Yeah. But, oh, like for myself, I still work at that same hot, uh, facility. Oh, yeah. Uh, had my 22-year anniversary yesterday. Nice. Um, and uh, I know, like, you know, our patients have, have been uh, really, really good throughout throughout and and we find ways to connect with them oh good 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 uh so now that you've gone through this do you look at clients or patients now and kind of connect with them i can definitely see myself at times um in in what they're you know what they're struggling with on a particular day or night or whatever and uh and yeah, I've I've shared my experience with with some of them over the years, and I like to think it helped. Um, yeah, you know, I think I, it probably I, is. I think it's important when when someone who's struggling sees somebody else talking. Yeah, you know, because just that that simple feeling of, you know, I'm the only one going through this that happens so much with you know with depression and stuff like that and to finally realize that okay no i'm not the only one going through it um you know that that alone you know usually has a pretty powerful impact on a person yeah it's just like going to aa meetings for me it's um talking to new new members or whatever and it's People see you have your shit together and they're like, what? You were in the same boat as I was? It's like, yeah, man. I mean, it's possible to recover and we all go through it. So it's not nothing to be ashamed of. And like you said, talking helps. Exactly. Like, um, so after you leave the hospital and stuff, how, how did it come about that you actually met Michael Landsberg or was there more before that? Uh, no, uh, basic. Why? Well, I, I mean, the, when I when I left the hospital, I was set up with counseling, um, and so I was I was going through that. Like I I was actually now at that point I was working on keeping myself better. Right. And that's kind of where, um, you know, when I say talking is my medicine right now, that's. You know, and and that's kind of where that stems from, is you know the counseling has been a huge help. Um, I do need to go more. You know, that's something uh, that I'm always kind of working on, but uh, but it it helps tremendously. And when it came to actually meeting Landsberg, it was I want to say a couple of years later. And again, I was watching TV. So I always, I kind of joke now that, you know, if anyone tells me I watch too much TV, I always say, you know, well, TV saved my life. So <laughs> watch it. And, uh, and so I, I was watching TV and, and a commercial come on. And it was the first year that uh, Landsberg was an ambassador for Bell Let's Talk Day. Hmm. And um, so I saw that and, and then I realized, well, you know, like I've never told him because when I when I sent him that initial email, I didn't say anything about, you know, I was planning on killing myself that day or anything like that. 
Um, and I thought, I wonder if I still have his email and maybe I'll send him a quick one just to, you know, remind him. He probably wouldn't remember, but it turns out he did remember. Um, we had a great talk and he actually, um, he wrote an article for TSN and he talked about me in this article and it uh it was funny about a week before it was to come out he sent me a copy of it and that's when it really hit me like shit this thing is going to be on the internet <laughs> everything now throughout all of this that happened and and at that point like i'm doing i'm doing much better uh, i'm in a good place the whole nine yards i had still never told anybody in my personal life what I had gone through and where I was at that point. Huh. My parents didn't know. Um, other relatives, friends, they didn't know. And it wasn't until I'm looking at the rough copy of this article and realizing it's going on the internet, I should probably tell some of these people. So why didn't you tell anybody else? What's that? So why didn't you talk to anyone else about it? I main my main thing I think was because at that point in time I was doing better and I didn't want to worry anybody. Right. So I figured okay, well I went through that garbage. I got through that. I'm in this this good place now. Why rehash all that stuff and you know worry my parents? or whatever, um, and bring it up. Like it just, it never crossed my mind that it would make a difference telling anybody at that point. So nobody knew you were in the hospital for a week no. and a half? Well, I imagine some, uh, I imagine some coworkers did. Right. Just um, like I work in a, in a long-term facility, but I mean, a lot of the staff that work at our facility also work at that place. So I'm sure uh, my name, my name would have been thrown around that I was there as a patient at some point. Um, no one ever approached me about it though, or, or asked me about it. Um, mm. Yeah. In terms of family and friends and stuff. Uh, I mean, I was like, I lived alone at that point too. So it wasn't like I had people stopping by all the time or I didn't talk to my parents every day. So to not, you know, talk to someone for a week and a half about, I don't think that really sent out any alarm bells to anyone. Gotcha. Hmm. And, and so, yeah, so then like back to the article and I'm, you know, I kind of did my little tour of, of going to each parent's place and, and telling them the story and a few close friends. And um, and then the story hit hit the Internet. And, of course, with social media, people were sharing it and stuff like that. And, uh, I mean, the response I got was incredible. Uh -huh. Was it – did you get emotional? Was it overwhelming? Well, even when I talk about some of it now, it, it kind of sends chills. Like when I think about how close, you know, when I think about where I am now and how close I came to to not being where I am now, um, I mean, it, it still sends chills. There's, there's no question about it. 
Yeah, it's scary. Have you had any kind of uh, bouts or any dark times since then? And But, you, you know, you have the tools now and you were able to work through it? Well, I think that's just it. And I, I think that's one of the things I, I I also share about is is just the fact that, you know, like even even um, to this day, like I, I still have my rougher days um, and, and rougher times and stuff. But like you said, I have the tools now um, to to kind of realize them when they're happening and do something about them and whether that be just you know making a phone call to a to a friend who i know you know has been has gone through it or an appointment with a counselor whatever right Mm -hmm. um like i say like my bad days today would have been like as bad as i might feel in that moment like today as an example i'm actually having a pretty good day but if it was a, a rougher day you know and and that kind of starts getting me down but then i think back to you know 11 to 2009 when when that when that day was and i think back to that and i think geez you know like even my bad days today would have been my best days back then yeah exactly i know this year's been a little rough for me like i'm quite open and I do a lot of advocating stuff and I understand when you were saying you didn't want to scare anybody because this year I've had some shitty times and it's like oh god you know do I (laughs) do I talk to my wife about how I'm feeling or is she gonna call the ambulance and it's like no no I don't need an ambulance I just want you to know how I've been feeling but so it was about three weeks ago yeah I had a good talk with her and talk with a counselor yeah yeah and I think I think with everything that's going on in the world right now, um, I think it's been tough on a lot of people. Yeah. You know, and, and I do think that, uh, that mental, the mental health of people has kind of taken a backseat in a a lot of people's eyes, you know, because everyone's so focused on, on COVID this and COVID that, that, you know, there's a lot of people that, that are struggling behind this, that no one's talking about yeah so when you met michael was did he come to north battleford or how did that happen actually um that was in 2014 and he was hosting there is an event in saskatoon and it was a major fundraiser um for what's called the neural health project and it was put together by Uh, a doctor in Saskatoon and Mike Babcock, actually, we used to coach Leafs. Mm. And and this was a major fundraiser. And I, I'd heard that Landsberg was hosting it. So I immediately text him like, you know what I'm saying? I don't care if tickets to this thing are a couple hundred bucks. Like, you know, we're going. And I was dating my wife at the time. And I remember her coming home from work and I'm, I was telling her about it and and she was like, yeah, let's do it. You know, even if we can only afford for you to go, we have to, you have to go meet them like an hour and a half away. So, um, so I texted him and, and I said, yeah, we're doing this. And 
and he was all for it. And I remember going to the website of this of this fundraiser, and I was you know buy tickets and stuff like that, and uh, and then I saw the price tag. This fundraiser was a thousand dollars plate. Oh my god! <laughs> and as soon as I see that, my heart kind of just sunk. And I texted Michael and I said, "Listen, I said I sure hope you got five minutes for a coffee or something because there's no fucking way <laughs> a thousand get into the doors in this place." And. Uh, I guess when you got connections, you got connections. I ended up getting a phone call from the doctor who, who was head of that project. And, um, and she had said that there was a, a couple that had donated two tickets and wanted them to go to someone that would really appreciate them. Ah, uh, nice. And so she invited me and my now wife, uh, girlfriend at the time, uh, to go. And so, I mean, that was incredible. Um, you know, we went out, um, my wife got a new dress for it. Cause you know, this is going to be a fancy thing. Uh, <laughs> invitation, a $2,000 dress. Not quite. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was funny because the invitation on, or the description on the invitation for attire was what they called prairie chic and <laughs> definition of it was wear something comfortable if you're if you're in flip-flops wear flip-flops um so we went we got my wife a, a nice dress stuff and uh, then i hit up walmart and i got this really nice white golf shirt not a sponsor <laughs> no and, <laughs> You know, we so we go to this event, and I mean, they there's you know TSN people there, there's NHL people there, like you know there, there's people there that are you know wearing suits that are probably worth more than what I make in a year. Um, <laughs> red carpet at the door, and all these people dressed to the nines. My my wife looked smoking hot. And, and here I am in this beautiful white golf shirt from Walmart, a pair of camo, camo cargo shorts. <laughs> and I was probably the most comfortable one there. <laughs> but uh, I walked into the building, uh, saw Michael, and I mean, before any words were spoken, it was just one big hug. And, uh, yeah, it, it went from there. The event went on and Michael, uh, had told my, my story while he was up on stage and, and how me and him had met and stuff. And then he points to me at the table and I, you know, and, uh, Mike Babcock was actually the first one to kind of let out a cheer and stand up and start clapping. Hmm. And then the whole room was. And I kind of awkwardly stand up and give a thumbs up. And then I sit back down, but no one's sitting back down. They're still up clapping. I remember looking up at my wife and saying, like, what do I do? <laughs> stand up again. So I stood up again. <laughs> it, was, it was really an incredible night. Um, 
and and a, you know i i guess a, a good first meeting with michael that uh and, and really started this incredible friendship we have to this day and it was two years after that uh, me and me and my wife were getting married and i asked michael to be a groomsman and he flew from toronto we got married uh near my wife's um hometown which is about 30 miles north of pa mm. uh michael flew down from toronto uh flew up or flew up <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and somehow managed to find his way 30 miles north of pa uh about five minutes before the wedding so he wasn't even late and so yeah uh he was he was a groomsman at my wedding and it's been a great that's an awesome story man is there i i i i mean i can talk about this stuff forever but I, you know, it's about an hour, people start getting bored. <laughs> is there anything you would want to say to so a man that is suffering, that was kind of in your situation that don't know? You know, I mean, like they they know something's wrong, but they don't know what's wrong. They're not talking. Just find someone to reach out to, and it could be a stranger. I mean, I'm easy enough to find on social media. Um, you know, but if, if there's a friend in your life, a spouse, you know, whatever, just that, that moment you actually tell somebody what it is you're going through will be the biggest difference maker. I think, um, you'll ever make. And one thing I do now is like, I'll, I'll often show a picture, um, of my family today. I was married once, uh, once before, and we had a daughter. And so at that time when I was, when I was ready to take my life, she would have been six. Uh, she just turned 18 this past month. So I show this, this family picture where there's myself, there's my daughter, my 18 year old, my wife, and me and my wife have two daughters. Uh, one is seven. The other, our little pandemic baby, was born last May. And, you know, I point to the people in that picture because that 18-year-old in that picture was six years old and almost lost her dad. You yeah. know, Pam, my wife, she, I'm sure, would have, you know, went off and gotten married and um, and had kids of her own. But they wouldn't have been the two kids we have now. You know, that seven-year-old and that almost one-year-old baby, they wouldn't even exist if I had never reached out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right on. Well, I really appreciate you talking to me today, and I'm so very happy you are here and healthy, and when you're not healthy, you're proactive, and that's that's awesome, and you're spreading the word. It's you're a delight to talk to, by the way. <laughs> and I'd, I'd, uh, I'd just clarify the healthy part with maybe mentally healthy because I got quite a good gut going here. <laughs> I hear you, man. I put out about 20 pounds this last year. <laughs>
Well, thank you very much again, Tyson. That's uh, just a great story. You've got a great attitude and great sense of humor, and I really appreciate you taking the time to tell your story. Um, and I wish all the best for you in the future. And I, I think you're going to do great uh, public speaking. Join me next week when I talk to two different folks. One is Shane Cockrell, the other Dylan Eckes. They are the founding members of the Inner Man Project. They're based out of Medicine Hat, Alberta. Uh, they started this men's health group after uh, numerous suicides took place in their, in their city involving young and middle-aged men. They have a Facebook site called The Inner Man Project and uh, also Instagram. I believe you can find them under The Inner Man Project. And uh, yeah, they're going to talk about their story and what they're up to and all the great, all the great services and things that they're doing. Um, it's a very, very inspirational story. Uh, they're getting a lot of great feedback and a lot of, uh, a lot of members. So listen to that. I hate to be one of these guys, but if at all possible, it takes seriously like 30 seconds. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcast. Please, can you review and rate this podcast? Uh, it would really help me out. It would help the podcast out to be able to be listened to by a lot more people. So, can you please do that? If you are having a mental health crisis, please call the Canadian Crisis Number at 1-833-456-4566. In Saskatchewan, the mobile crisis team in Prince Albert is 306 306- Seven six four one zero one one. In Regina, it's 306-525-5333. And in Saskatoon, it's 306-933-6200. Don't forget to check out my children's book, Sometimes Daddy Cries. Sometimes Daddy Cries is told through the eyes of a boy whose father suffers from depression. He sees his dad get sad, rest, and even go to the hospital, all while comparing his father's depression to a physical ailment. Available on Amazon.ca. I'll see you next time. This is Todd Redebaum saying, make your beds and take your meds. Bye! Bye!